Ok, parfait. Creativity requires transparency. With yourself, first of all, to really acknowledge that you have the thought and to think about it a little bit more. And with others, to share with them ideas. One of my two PhD advisors said, no one owns ideas. Go share them with everyone, see what happens. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Itai and I. And I am Martin Lurcher. For many of us, Aviv Regev is what you would call a true science hero. She's a pioneer of the fields of single-cell genomics and systems biology. Her lab has been creating methods that are both experimental and computational. And together with Sarah Teichman, a former Night Science podcast guest, Aviv founded and leads the Human Cell Atlas Project. Aviv is on an amazing career trajectory. She earned her PhD at the Tel Aviv University. Then she was a fellow at the Center for Genomics Research at Harvard. That's actually when I met her and we became friends. Then she became a core member at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and also a professor at the Department of Biology at MIT. Then, two years ago, she moved to the company Genentech, where she is executive vice president and head of research and early development. There's a rumor in the scientific world, actually also strengthened by Itai, that Aviv is also a great mentor. And so I want to read to you what Aviv has written about mentorship. Mentorship, Aviv says, is a special part of every scientific endeavor. A mentor does not simply teach existing knowledge because science is about discovering and understanding what is not yet known. And they surely do not simply manage because to become a research scientist, one must learn how to self-start from lack of knowledge, to navigate into new knowledge. Rather, a mentor plays a critical role in chaperoning and guiding an individual through vision, advice, support, modeling, and listening. We are so grateful that you're here with us. Welcome, Aviv. Thank you so much for having me. Aviv, overall, what would you say is your creative process? Yeah, you know, I don't actually think about this until you ask this kind of question. I think that's quite typical, actually, for scientists, that we usually don't think about that. I agree, and I think it's kind of inherent for the process. If you stop yourself and you start thinking about it at a meta level, And then it could actually undermine your ability to do the work that you care about the most. So maybe if, if I'll use a short phrase, I would say, go with the flow. The ideas come, the opportunities arise, and you flow with them rather than it's something that you try to engineer and control yourself. But I'll also emphasize that often when people ask questions like this, honestly, when you interview a single individual, there's this assumption that this is all an internalized process, that it's something that me and myself and I are doing on our own, sitting somewhere in the room, spewing off ideas and then creating things. But at least in science, and definitely in the kind of science that I do and that many of my colleagues do, it's really a question also of the environment in which you are. And you always are thinking, the people around you are always thinking, and there is a lot of mutual interaction and interfaces in this. So on the one hand, yeah, you go with the flow. It's not something that you turn on and off. It's always there, probably, but it's also something that's very interactive. And putting it as though it's just one person and their creative process probably does an injustice to reality. Aviv, when you say going with the flow, 
there is an element of taste. Wouldn't you say there at some points along the way, you might say, oh, this is more of a question that I want to ask, or at this junction in the road, I want to turn left. That's more sort of my style. Do you ever feel like that? Oh, I think there's a huge component of taste. Maybe it's a combination of two things. When you think about that flow, there is an external thing. When you say go with the flow, it's as though you're not an active agent. There's just stuff that flows around you and you go with. But there is a second thing. And I think in the big picture, at least for somebody like me, there's questions that interest me and they've interested me for many years. Some of them going all the way back to being an undergrad. And the kind of questions that you choose are probably a combination of something that you think is important, but also it's what is interesting to you. And interesting is very much a question of taste. So I'm interested in molecular circuits and how cells operate. And in a sense, that question hasn't really changed at all since I was an undergrad and I first realized that it's interesting for me. And it's probably interesting for me for a whole set of reasons that have to do with the things that come together in a question like this. I like the fact that it's both a lot of details in the way that they synthesize together, that there is a portion of it that is very abstract and conceptual and a portion of it that's almost like storytelling. This does this to that. And that's just stuff that speaks to me. It's hard to say why, but it speaks to me. It fits my particular kind of personality or intellect, or as I said, my own personal taste. And that's very unwavering, but the opportunities around it, what can be done right now about a problem that interests you, that can change a lot because of both internal or intrinsic things that change in you, ideas that come to you, and also opportunities that are just out there. And when these two things combine, all sorts of uh, nonlinear interactions happen. And from that, maybe the creation and the ideas. And that's influenced by people and circumstances. But I agree, Ty, often there are different choices and based on who we are and what speaks to us and where our taste is, we go one way or the other way. And does it feel to you like it's actually conscious decisions that you make, that you consciously decide, I want to go in that direction? Or is it more that the flow just carries you there because you're interested? No, that's why I said the go in the flow is probably only half of the story. I think for me, usually the many different things that I do, I tend to be a broadband person. I like working on a lot of different things in parallel. And often people think maybe from the outside that this it's just a collection. Maybe each of the things is interesting, but they don't see the connections. What happens to me, and that is not go with the flow at all, is that in my mind, all of these things are connected. And I can see how if everything happens then something else would exist besides the individual parts that would be important and meaningful and interesting. And I can give you an example. I've worked, uh, I think I mentioned that I've worked a lot on cells and I've also worked for many years now in a field that, you know, honestly didn't used to exist at all called now cell genomics. And both Itai and I were there in the early days, so he can attest it really didn't exist at all in the beginning as a field. But there is a set of problems that is very interesting for me on how cells work and how different genes in the cell work together. And in order to really tackle problems like these, you need to have a better way of characterizing the cell, a better way of perturbing the cell, and in particular of perturbing multiple things at once, and better ways of putting that together. And I probably realized now it's 10 years ago that there's an opportunity around it. But if you want that opportunity, you need lab methods that can behave in a certain way. 
Then you need algorithms that really combine with that and to see how you can tease out biology from this combination. Then you need another effort that teaches you how to do these kinds of perturbations at scale. Then you need to put these two things together and it's another lab method. And then another iteration on how you think about this problem computationally. And in parallel to that, you constantly have to think about the problem that even if you had all of these pieces in place, you would never be able to do all the experiments that are needed in order to do it exhaustively. There's just too many possibilities in the world. So you start thinking about the math that's related to that and maybe the techniques that you would apply in that context. And each of these things that I mentioned was actually not just one research project. It was many different projects. They had their own creativity, their own questions. They weren't actually tied together from the outside. But in my mind, they were always all connected. And I felt that, you know, maybe they would just succeed on their own and you would never get a combined effect. So this associative thinking of pulling threads together and putting them together and knowing that in your mind that makes sense, that's definitely a component for me of the kind of work that I like to do. I mean, it's great if you have that opportunity, right? If you can actually choose yourself what you want to work on and then work on these parallel things and see the connections and not care about if anybody else sees them at the moment. Yeah, I think caring a lot about other people and a little bit of not caring at all is a good combination. <laughs> Maybe to distinguish quote-unquote good and quote-unquote bad ideas early on. So caring a little bit too much about what people think can really undermine your ability, but not caring is also a problem. So you have to kind of toggle between the two. Avi, we want to ask you about particular tricks that you have when you're in your office and trying to be creative. I think you, you've already told us, one, that you sort of need to have two modes. One, that's having a broad idea that you've had for many years. In a sense, that's like a rigid kind of principle. And on the other hand, to also be flexible and go with the flow. My friend, Gidi Grinstein, he has a term for that. He calls it flexigidity. <laughs> which is a combination of the two. But do you have other tricks that you could think of that help you spark new ideas? I kind of listen to my own frustrations. I find frustration to be a great signal of something interesting is happening. I don't see it as a negative thing at all. Almost everything I've done that I've really enjoyed and was happy later on with came from the fact that before I felt really frustrated about it. Often people see frustration as a negative But I see it as a complete positive. It's kind of the first signal that there is something there. You're frustrated. You feel it could be there, but it's not exactly there yet. So it can be very far from there yet. Is it the frustration of realizing here's an interesting question and I have no idea how to answer it? Or is it something different? I can really point them clearly when they happened and they come every few years. I'm now in the next chapter because of another quote-unquote frustration. And I really don't mean it as a negative thing. I want to say that again and again because I know the word has negative connotations. It really comes from the feeling that something great can happen and yet it's not happening now. Mm. And so it has to be both. It's not just the feeling that it's not happening But it's also that great feeling of promise that if only X or Y, then something would happen. And so that is true, I think, for me in scientific problems and otherwise. And it's just something I learned to listen to. So if I just reflect on my current chapter and what led me here, in the previous few years before I decided to make this move, 
I had this increasing feeling that these new approaches that are in the world, and I contributed to some of them, and Itai contributed to them as well, but also many other people, the possibilities we have in how we can study humans and their biology in patients, or these high-resolution, massive-scale methods like single-cell genomics, or the advances in computation and machine learning. There's a series of them, and I got to see all the really magnificent things that happen with them when you put them to good use in biological research, and I felt that they should have a real impact on human disease as well. And it wasn't really coming. Mm-hmm. Not in the way I thought maybe it could be possible, right? It wasn't really coming. And I definitely couldn't feel that I could really make it happen in the situation that I was at. And so that was a frustration. And I tried to tackle it in different kinds of ways. And all of these ways taught me something. And they also clarified to me what I felt could happen. And that prompted me actually to make this move and to be in genetic now. Because I wanted to be in an environment and a context where, first of all, my mind was focused on this. If I really care about it, then I need to be focused. And where the people around me were focused on it as well. Aviv, you talked about going with the flow and interacting with others. You talked about how perhaps it's a myth that only an individual person is creative, but rather the creativity is at the level of a team. And I think many of our listeners have come to truly admire your work at the level of the science as much as at the level of the collaborations that are occurring. You really are a master collaborator. And so that has to count as an attestment to your creativity. Can you kind of distill for us how you think about collaborations, the nucleation of collaborations, the day-to-day, the solving of problems? What is sort of your philosophy about collaborations? Yeah, that's a great point. So as I think about collaboration, there's many different styles and ways of collaborating effectively, but I do not think of collaboration as a transactional thing. It's not you give me (laughs) something and I give you something, although you can do great collaborations that way, by the way. And some people do. But for me, that's just not sufficiently joyous. That's not a true collaboration, right? I'm just looking for more fun, I think. And so (laughs) there's definitely, definitely, in many collaborations, there's a complementarity component. You know, one person comes from one perspective and ability and another from another. But I know some, and I have a great example, Jonathan Gutenberg and Omar Abudayed. They've been collaborating for years and years And they're not exactly complementary. They're actually extremely similar to each other. (laughs) They're almost like one person working as through two people. It's hard to explain it. And I've known several examples of that. They're not the only one, but maybe they're the most prominent one. Not my style of collaboration, but (laughs) an extremely impressive one. So complementarity is common, but it's not always the case. Sometimes you collaborate with somebody who's really similar to you. But often you are drawn to collaborate because you're looking at something that's actually different than you. And when you collaborate, a lot of it is in this non-linearity. It's in the fact that you put two things together and you each, you or multiple yous, are each going further or differently than you would otherwise. So that's maybe one big component of a successful Synergy. Yeah, as you would call it, synergy. The second is generosity. I think there's a lot of research showing that we actually are the happiest when we give of ourselves to others rather than when we get more things. 
And collaboration is one of the greatest opportunities you have to do that, to be generous with your ideas, with your abilities, with resources that you have, with your time, with your mindset. Everything can be also pointed in the direction of others and what they need rather than always you and what you need. And when everyone in a collaboration behaves in this way, then of course it's a lot of fun. I think these roles are more in the paid forward category, right? It's not a tit for tat, it's not transactional. So you get to play that role in one context and then in another context, somebody plays it towards you and it's not necessarily the person to whom you gave something. But this portion of generosity, I think is one of the greatest ones. And then the third one is probably just the unexpected nature of collaborations. That's also always the fun of science. You never know what will happen in a collaboration. Stuff happens, go with the flow, right? Surprises happen. You were talking about these interactions with other researchers about these collaborations, but in terms of the creativity that's required in science, how does that work in those interactions? And is it different if you interact with your immediate environment, with the people in your lab, for example, and if you interact with people who are a bit more distant, with collaborators in other groups. So how does that affect your creativity? I think there are some key components to it. There's time, there's openness, and maybe there's a little bit of mechanisms. You actually have to put the time in. And that's the same as interacting with people in your lab, people across the world, people in the corridor next to you. I sometimes say you have to worry about other people's problems. And that goes back to that point of generosity I made earlier. You actually walk around as you think your thoughts. Your thoughts are also around other things that you see that matter to your collaborators or to your colleagues at large in your community. You know, when I was at the Broad, we used to have these conference rooms right next to the elevators and they had transparent doors. So you could basically see everything that was going on. Elevators were deliberately placed so that when you were waiting for them, you would see the slides that other people were presenting. (laughs) And one of the great things would happen as a result of that, you would see the slides and you would see the people in the room and you would see what they were talking about. You were like, oh, yeah, that's actually relevant to somebody else. And for me, it was a habit to go to that somebody else or the person in the room and to say, oh, I just happened to see them talking about that. You should really talk to them. It's relevant to you. That's what I mean by worrying about other people's problems. And you put your time into that, and you promote this transparency. Creativity requires transparency. With yourself, first of all, to really acknowledge that you have the thought and to think about it a little bit more, and with others, to share with them ideas. One of my two Mm. PhD advisors said, no one owns ideas. Go share them with everyone, see what happens. They try to close it off. They try to make it only their own. And I think that's actually not that great to their creativity. Well, the postdocs, they might say that if they have one great idea, they're really concerned about it getting scooped and their career is on the line. And it's sort of hard to make the case in some cases that it's good to be open. And what would you say to that? There is plenty of people that you can trust with your idea. That's my answer. And it's an answer I've given many times. Everything, you know, on Twitter or the front page of the New York Times, if you feel uncomfortable, that doesn't mean that you can't tell anyone. Right, right. (laughs) There's a range. There are the people in your lab and the lab next door. There's your friends. There's colleagues who are trustworthy. And what happens to ideas is that they sharpen. They become 
better. They become crisper. They get challenged by others that make your idea better. They basically go through the evolutionary process with some, you know, heritable variation plus <laughs> goes a really That's long like way. And if you don't introduce these things in, now, if you put too strong of a selection, your idea just gets killed. So you have to be careful, right? But if you right. put just the right amount of selection, your idea gets better. <laughs> so that's really my general answer to this. But I've heard a lot of people who are just so careful around somebody is going to scoop me, somebody going to take from me, that they totally forget that somebody could also be giving them something. I want to go back to something that you said about time. You also said that you're a broadband person. You like to do many things at the same time. Anyone that knows you can easily attest to that as well. I'm wondering if you see that as a part of your creative process, to kind of have lots of ideas floating around and allow them to form surprising connections. Yes, I actually agree. Not that I've thought about that myself, but thank you. <laughs> it keeps things moving, right? Yeah, I use time very elastically, I think. I toggle between what people would think of as more efficient use of time. You know, mm. you do things, you have a plan, you have your list, you have your mechanisms, you have your apps. So I definitely do that. And very focused use of time when you're disconnected from the things around you that allows you to write and to think. And I use different mechanisms for it. And it also shifts with your life. The rest of your life also influences how you use your time. When you have very young kids, you might use it very differently than in other points in time. If you're an early riser, you would do things differently than if you're the kind of person who likes to work in the middle of the night. I'm an early riser, but that's <laughs> you know, physiology. And I also try to abide by a piece of advice that I heard from a former grad student, Brian Cleary. His approach to creativity is that every morning he chooses to do the thing that he really wants to do that day. And I mm. really took <laughs> That's revolutionary. Partly because that's not entirely unlike what I do. I actually feel that most of the time I do the things I actually want to do that day. And maybe if it's not to the resolution of a day, then definitely in the resolution of weeks and months. I don't spend weeks and months doing things I don't actually want to do. If that's the case, then I'm not doing what I should be doing. And that's mm -hmm. also the privilege, yeah. I think, of people in our profession and environments is that we get to actually do that. And I appreciate that as a huge privilege and I don't squander it. But also because I sometimes just remind myself of that consciously at something and I say, ah, let me just do something I really want to do right now. Going back to what you said about you using time very elastically, what do you mean by that exactly? I mean, I would love to know the principles by which you decide how to use your time. I've known you for a long time and it really does seem that you are a kind of sorcerer of time. You employ some magic in how you get so much done. <laughs> how is it that you do it? You have to give us some tips because I suspect it really is a key part of your creativity. It's great that you're asking me this question on the Monday morning, which is optimistic <laughs> moment in the week. Right. And not it's all going to dissipate in a minute. But <laughs> exactly. Then it starts dissipating. Right. How do I use it elastically? To be honest, I don't fully know. I just look at it in retrospect and I say there was some stretch in it. <laughs> There's things that are explicit in how you slice and dice it and plan for it and think about, you know, who you want to see, why and when, when do you want to be thinking about things? 
stuff like that. There's a little bit of knowledge that you have about yourself, which I definitely accumulated with time of knowing what times of day and week are good for me for certain things. I know there's things I do really well early in the morning, and I try really not to compromise that time for other things because it would be hard to recover it in other ways. I know that there's things I really can't do after a certain hour in the day. Now, you know, <laughs> if it's a complete emergency, you do whatever. But I very much try not to organize my life so that I'm constantly doing things at the wrong time of day or week or month and so on. And it's kind of this repeatable cadence that does help you. So that's definitely one component. And a lot of it is about self-knowledge. So some of the things you said sounded like you're very spontaneous in how you use your time. Like, you know, you, you wake up in the morning and you think about, what do I want to do today? But then other things that you said sound more like you're very precise in organizing your time. So can you tell us a little bit about that? How much do you actually manage your time and how much do you do spontaneously? So it's a mixture and it's on different time scales. In any given morning, when I actually wake up, I have a schedule and it's pretty full and there's things I have to do, right? Because I already committed to doing them. But those are things you chose to do. So maybe there is a time scale shift, which if I were in grad school, I wouldn't have had to apply as much. But when I was in grad school, I actually also worked in a company and I worked on what ended up being like two different thesis projects. So you can see that there's a trend there with me of doing multiple things at once. Aviv, you know, thinking back on the comment that Brian Cleary made about waking up each morning and thinking what would make him happy, what does he want to do with his time that day, I'm reminded of one thing you told me once, which is one thing you'd really like to do is at the end of the day, after dinner, wash the dishes and put them into the dishwasher. <laughs> Because it's one task that you can start and complete, and it's just done, and you get the satisfaction of achieving something because so many things in our world just take forever to achieve, right? Like, how long does it take to finish a work and then publish it? Yes. It's forever. So, I mean, if Brian Cleary wakes up every morning and just decides, I'm just afraid it clashes with the reality of the process taking forever. So I guess one question is, how do you creatively or not account for that? First of all, I like doing things like that, that have a start and stop <laughs> with your eyes that they're done, right? right. Loading the dishwasher is a great example. So yes, <laughs> I like it. And I think it's very specific and clear. And scientists in particular just don't get a lot of that. So mm. I seek those opportunities. Some people, and I'm not sure I'm one of them, but I know a lot of people break the bigger things into smaller parts. And I do, I gave you an example of that early in the conversation when I said about all the pieces that in my mind are connected, but these parts are still big in their own right. And you can break them down to finer and finer pieces. But I don't think that goes with the creation, which is often forgotten in the creative process. People think being creative is about spawning off ideas, but they sometimes forget that something needs to be created in the end. Something needs to come and exist in the world. And that execution part is hard. And I think as you move on, you often seek harder and harder problems. So if I think from my current perspective, making drugs, making medicines, it is extremely creative in many senses. First, you, the classical scientific creativity of figuring out the disease and 
what you should be targeting in the disease and so on. But you're actually creating new things that didn't exist in the world and need to be made. And in some ways, that's the essence of creativity and creation. And it's damn hard and it's extremely long. I think those things are the ones where you have to understand how to balance this tantalizing long-term thing that might take 15 years and might fail mm. along the way. Yeah. And we didn't talk about failure at all. It sounded all like it's roses. You know, <laughs> there's tons of failure in the creative process. But you want to balance that with things that are tangible along the way and there's always the risk that in over-indexing on getting something done and getting another thing done and getting another thing done, you would actually lose track of the long-term creative goal. So you mentioned just now that failure is something we didn't talk about. Yeah. So what role does failure play in your creative process? You have to be really resilient to failure. And I've had opportunities to see that more than even just learn it personally early on, as well as learn it. And I think it's been great for me. And I sometimes feel sorry for people who have been too successful too early because it's going to come and they would be unprepared when it comes. And they wouldn't have the mechanisms that those who failed more who failed earlier and less spectacularly actually develop early on. Yeah, but you were just mentioning how important resilience is and how important it is to learn that, to be resilient against failure. But I was specifically wondering, does failure play a specific role in the creative part of your science and how? So it does in several ways. The first one is that it, after you fail and the sky didn't fall and the world didn't fall, <laughs> you realize that's okay. I can take risks. I can go after weird ideas because what's the worst thing that would happen? they would fail. If you don't, if you're unwilling to consider failure as a possibility, you are going to undermine your ability to pursue new radical ideas. These two things go hand in hand. And in fact, it is a much riskier strategy not to take risk. Exactly. Aviv, I'm wondering if I could ask you about a certain aspect of your creative process, which has to do with analogies. I think anyone that's seen your work sees that you really sort of eat, breathe analogies. You know, for example, the human cell atlas. It's an atlas. You're using that analogy to motivate particular questions. Do you use that consciously or is it just sort of very intuitive to the way that you think? I think just like associations and abstractions, which are things I just like, I think my brain is wired that way. But I also know that analogies are something, they're a great tool and they're also extremely risky. And you have to be very careful about them. Oh, yeah. What are the risks? The tool, I think, is obvious. They allow you to draw associations and connections, and then you can pull something from one world and bring it to another one. The big risk is that sometimes they're just an analogy. They're not actually inherently there. And so you can get so wired in them, it's not going to just map from one place to the other. Maybe it gives you a direction, but it's not an automatic projection from one space to another space. And people fall into that a lot, but it's something to really be conscious of. So if there's one conscious part about it, it's not really to make the analogy. That's, as I said, I think associations, abstractions, analogies are things that I just kind of do. I don't think about. But after they happen is where I kind of always like to take the step back and not over-index on them 
But think about whether this was kind of a fun analogy or there is a there there. And if there is a there there, what precisely is it? So if you take the atlas and maps, I think the key point is with maps is that they are an abstraction. They're not a one-to-one map because then they're useless. And so what kinds of abstractions are there? What are relationships or maps? How do you map layer different layers? But at some point, you need to let go of the analogy as a crutch and stay in the problem that you're actually solving. Yeah, apparently the alchemists, they took analogies very far and they thought there was some deeper truth in them. But of course, like you're saying, at some point you have to let go of them and make sure you understand the differences between the two systems you're looking at. Aviv, I would love to go back to something that you said at the very beginning of the podcast. You said that you're worried that if you think too much about the creative process, then this might actually interfere with your ability to be creative. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, I think uh, there are so many ways in which we can undermine ourselves. You know, the little voice in your head that tells you this and tells you that. And so being overly conscious of our actions Mm. can really hurt us from just doing them. That's where the going with the flow is not just the external flow of ideas and so on. It's also your own internal flow. Let it happen rather than constantly sitting there also observing yourself and thinking about what you're doing. And I say that not just about creativity, also about human actions in general. That's my big pet peeve with advice giving. So sometimes the best advice is no advice at all. And that's kind of a funny way to wrap up this conversation because it means, you know, everything I said about how I think and do and so on probably should be taken with a massive, massive (laughs) Each person does something in their own way and they probably don't even know themselves why and how. But if it works and they're feeling fulfilled and they're doing they're doing the right things, then maybe it doesn't really matter. (laughs) That is a nice point on which to end the episode. Uh, Aviv, I want to ask you as a parting question, would you say you're an introvert or an extrovert? I don't know. (laughs) I asked myself that question only in relatively late adulthood because uh, I didn't know people classify themselves in this way. What I will (laughs) say, I think this changes a lot circumstances like context dependent context and time and um, um it's another way that i'd rather not limit myself in who i am and how i do by feeling that i'm one thing or i'm another thing so i maybe activate different parts of my personality in different contexts yeah you're certainly not one-dimensional oh thank you <laughs> none of us is well aviv that was Really a great conversation. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you so much, Aviv. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the sunshine and sunrise. Thank you.